Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast recording of the Doctrine and Covenants of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Even though this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort has been made to be as doctrinally and historically accurate as possible. Every day a new section of the Doctrine and Covenants will be released. I hope that you'll visit this often and be able to share this uh, with your friends. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the Doctrine and Covenants podcast. This will be for section 112. The heading reads, Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet to Thomas B. Marsh at Kirtland, Ohio, July 23, 1837, concerning the twelve apostles of the Lamb. This revelation was received on the day elders Heber C. Kimball and Orson Hyde first preached the gospel in England. Thomas B. Marsh was at this time president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. A little bit more background about this one. This revelation was given during some of the darkest days in the history of the church. As night follows the day, so the light and glory that surrounded the dedication of the Kirtland Temple was supplanted by darkness and evil. In the summer of 1837, members of the Quorum of the Twelve, witnesses to the Book of Mormon and other key priesthood leaders, met in the upper room of the temple to dispose of Joseph Smith as the prophet of the Lord. Their plan was to organize a new church with David Whitmer at its head. They had determined to reject the prophet, the Book of Mormon, and the priesthood while seeking to unite the Christian world around repentance, baptism, and the Bible. In the midst of this darkness, Joseph Smith said, God revealed to me that something new must be done for the salvation of his church. Heber C. Kimball reported that the prophet Joseph Smith came to him while he was in the Kirtland Temple and said, Brother Heber, the Spirit of the Lord has whispered to me, let my servant Heber go to England and proclaim my gospel and open the door of salvation to that nation. Section 112 was given on the day the gospel was first preached in England. It was directed to Thomas B. Marsh, then the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and the man thus entitled to a revelation on the duties of that quorum. This revelation is of singular importance in identifying the rights and authority of the Twelve in declaring the gospel to the nations of the earth and in specifying their relationship to the First Presidency. Before before he received this revelation, the prophet Joseph Smith recorded in his journal that Kirtland was experiencing widespread disunity, contention, and apostasy. Financial speculation had caused the Kirtland Society or the Kirtland Safety Society, the financial institution of the church, to fail. Many, even some of the leaders of the church, blamed the prophet for such problems. The prophet Joseph wrote, "In this state of things, and but few." And but a few weeks before the twelve were expecting to meet in full quorum, some of them having been absent for some time, God revealed to me that something new must be done for the salvation of the church. And on or about the 1st of June, 1837, Heber C. Kimball, um, one of the twelve was set apart by the spirit of prophecy and revelation, prayer and laying on of hands of the first presidency to preside over a mission to England, to be the first foreign mission of the church of Christ in the last days. President Joseph Fielding Smith wrote, The day that the British missionaries preached the first sermon in England, July 23, 1837, the Lord gave a revelation to the prophet Joseph Smith directed to Thomas B. Marsh as president of the Council of the Apostles. In this revelation, Elder Marsh was instructed to teach the brethren in his council and point out to them their duty and responsibilities in proclaiming the gospel. Some of the apostles had forsaken their responsibility and had turned their attention to schemes of speculation. 
The years preceding the year 1837 were years of wild speculation throughout the United States, and Elder Heber C. Kimball pointed out how this boom had struck Kirtland, and some of the brethren had borrowed great sums and had gone into business at the expense of their ministry. Then, when the bobble of false prosperity broke, they were left financially stranded. Then they began to blame the prophet Joseph Smith. This revelation to Thomas B. Marsh was a warning and a call to him to bring his brethren back into the line of their duty as apostles of Jesus Christ. The first 12 verses of section 112 are directed to Thomas B. Marsh, giving him comfort, counsel, and admonition. The rest of the section contains the instructions he was to convey to the twelve. Verse 1. Verily thus Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Thomas, I have heard thy prayers, and thine alms have come up as a memorial before me, in behalf of those thy brethren who were chosen to bear testimony of my name, and to send it abroad among all nations, kindreds, tongue, tongues, and people, and ordained through the instrumentality of my servants. Verily I say unto you, there have been some few things in thine heart, and with thee, with which I, the Lord, am not well pleased, or was not well pleased. Nevertheless, in, nevertheless, inasmuch as thou hast abased thyself, thou shalt be exalted. Therefore all thy sins are forgiven thee. Let thy heart be of good cheer before my face, and thou shalt bear record of my name, not only unto the Gentiles, but also unto the Jews, and thou shalt send forth my word unto the ends of the earth. It is the office and calling of an apostle to testify of Christ, and of all that pro properly bears his name, that is, all that is done under the direction of the priesthood. It is the duty of the twelve to both teach the gospel among the nations of the earth, and to see that the affairs of the church are properly regulated wherever it has been organized. Verse 5, Contend thou, therefore, morning by morning, and day after day, let thy warning voice go forth. And when the night cometh, let not the inhabitants of the earth slumber because of thy speech. In the early 19th century, this phrase meant to use earnest efforts to obtain or to defend and preserve. When he said, contend thou, that's what he's saying. It's to be use earnest efforts to obtain or to defend and preserve. Verse 6, Let thy habitation be known in Zion, and remove not thy house, for I, the Lord, have a great work for, for thee to do in publishing my name among the children of men. In 1832, Thomas B. Marsh received an inheritance, about 30 acres, on the Big Blue River, Missouri, and there he built a comfortable log house. When the saints were driven from Jackson County, he went to Lafayette County, while most of the exiles sought refuge in Clay County. In 1834, he too went to Clay County after an extended visit to Kirtland. He returned to his home on Fishing River, Clay County. In 1836, he built a house in Far West. In June 1837, he again visited Kirtland. It was necessary for the success of his mission that his residence in Zion should be known and that his house should not be moved. Verse 7, Therefore gird up thy loins for the work. Let thy feet be shod also, for thou art chosen, and thy path lieth among the, among the mountains and among my, many nations. Be ready to travel. Thomas did not fulfill this prophecy to visit many nations because he apostatized from the church. Verse 8, and, and by thy word many high ones shall be brought low, and by thy word many low ones shall be exalted. Thomas was a very eloquent speaker. Verse 9, thy voice shall be a rebuke unto the transgressor, and at thy rebuke let the tongue of the of the slanderer cease its perversion or its perverseness. Be thou humble, and the Lord thy God shall lead thee by the hand, and give thee answer to thy prayers. 
Being humble was an admonition that uh, Thomas had difficulty with. Thomas B. Marsh's failure to heed the counsel given him in this verse caused the Spirit of the Lord eventually to withdraw from him. George A. Smith, Heber C. Kimball, and Orson Hyde all relate interesting experiences regarding Elder Marsh's rejection of the Lord's admonitions and his apostasy from the church. George A. Smith tells the story, the wife of Thomas B. Marsh, who was then president of the Twelve Apostles, and Sister Harris concluded that they could exchange milk in order to make a little a larger cheese than they otherwise could. To be sure to have justice done, it was agreed that they should not save the strippings, but that the milk and strippings should all go together. Some uh, small matters to talk about here, to be sure, two women exchanging milk to make cheese. Mrs. Harris, it appeared, was faithful to the agreement and carried to Mrs. Marsh the milk and strippings, but Mrs. Marsh, wishing to make some extra good cheese, saved a pint of strippings from each cow and sent Mrs. Harris the milk without the strippings. Finally, it leaked out that Mrs. Marsh had saved strippings, and it became a matter to be settled by the teachers. They began to examine the matter, and it was proved that Mrs. Marsh had saved the strippings and consequently had wronged Mrs. Harris out of that amount. An appeal was made from the teacher to the bishop, and a regular church trial was had. President Marsh did not consider that the bishop had done him and his lady justice, for they decided that the strippings were wrongfully saved and that the woman had violated her covenant. Marsh immediately took an appeal to the high council, who investigated the question with such with much patience, and I assure you they were a grave body. Marsh, being extremely anxious to maintain the character of his wife, as he was the president of the Twelve Apostles and a great man in Israel, made a desperate defense, but the high council finally confirmed the, pres- the bishop's decision. Marsh, not being satisfied, took an appeal to the first presidency of the church, and Joseph and his counselors had to sit upon the case, and they approved the decision of the high council. This little affair, you will observe, kicked up a considerable breeze, and Thomas B. Marsh then declared that he would sustain the character of his wife even if he had to go to hell for it. The then president of the Twelve Apostles, the man who should have been the first to do justice and cause reparation to be made for wrong, committed by any member of his family, took that position, and what next? He went before a magistrate and swore that the Mormons were hostile towards the state of Missouri. That affidavit brought from the gov- brought from the government of Missouri an exterminating order which drove some 15,000 saints from their homes and habitations. Heber C. Kimball reported that about the time he, Thomas B. Marsh, was preparing to leave this church, he received a revelation in the printing office. He retired to himself and prayed and was humble, and God gave him a revelation, and he wrote it. There were from three to five pages of it, and when he came out, he read it to Brother Brigham Young and me. In it, God told him what to do, and that was to sustain Brother Joseph and to believe that what Brother Joseph had said was true. But no, he took a course to sustain his wife and oppose the prophet of God, and she led him, led him away. Last, we learn from Orson Hyde, who partook of the spirit of, of apostasy with Thomas B. Marsh. During our temptation, David W. Patton was shot by the enemy, and several days afterward, while Thomas B. and myself were sitting in the log cabin together in silent meditation, some being smote him on the sho- some being smote him on the shoulder and said, with a countenance full of deepest anxiety and solicitude, Thomas, Thomas, why have you so soon forgotten? Thomas told me it was David W. Patton, with whom he put long before had made a covenant to remain true and faithful until the end. So Thomas had a vision of, of, uh, of David W. Patton after David had passed away from the gunshot wound.
Verse 11, I know thy heart and have heard thy prayers concerning thy brethren. Be not partial towards them in love above, above many others, but let thy love be for them as for thyself, and let thy love abound unto all men and unto all who love my name. And pray for thy brethren of the twelve. Admonish them sharply for my name's sake, and let them be admonished for all their sins, and be ye faithful before me unto my name. So that was the admonition then to uh, to Thomas. Verse 13, And after their temptations and much tribulations, behold, I the Lord will feel after them. And if they harden not their hearts and stiffen not their necks against me, they shall be converted and I will, and I will heal them. Of these difficult times in Kirtland, John Taylor wrote, there was a, a very bitter feeling gotten up by a member whom, of men, by a number of men who had apostatized. Parley P. Pratt was one who was affected. He, however, did not go to the length that some did, and Orson Pratt had taken more or less of that spirit. As a measure of his integrity, Elder Pratt recounted this experience in his autobiography, saying, About this time, after I had returned from Canada, there were jarrings and discords in the church at Kirtland, and many fell away and became enemies and apostates. There were also envyings, lyings, strifes, and divisions, which caused much trouble and sorrow. By such spirits I was also accused, misinterpreted, and abused. And at, and at one time I also was overcome by the same spirit in a great measure, and it seemed as if the very powers of darkness which war against the saints were let loose upon me. But the Lord knew my faith, my zeal, my integrity my, of purpose, and he gave me the victory. I went to Brother Joseph Smith in tears, and with a broken heart and contrite spirit, confessed wherein I had erred in spirit, murmured, or done or said amiss. He frankly forgave me, prayed for me, and blessed me. Thus, by experience, I learned more fully to discern and to con contrast the two spirits and to resist the one and cleave to the other and being tempted in all points even as others i learned how to bear with and, ex and excuse and succor those who are tempted we are told that orson hyde had come close to disaffecting or defecting when but perchance walked in on the meeting in which heber c kimball was being set apart for his mission to england Humbled by the spirit that he felt, he acknowledged his faults to the prophet, sought forgiveness, and asked to accompany Elder Kimball on his mission. The prophet set him apart to that calling, and he later played a significant role in that mission that proved to be the salvation of the church. Many others did not repent. Luke S. Johnson, Lyman E. Johnson, and, F and John F. Boynton were dropped from the Quorum of the Twelve in the conference held on the 3rd of September, 1837, less than a month and a half after this revelation was given. That was by uh, Joseph Fielding McConkie's book. Verse 14, Now I say unto you, and what I say unto you, I say unto all the twelve, Arise and gird up your loins, take up your cross, follow me, and, f and feed my sheep. Exalt not yourselves, rebel not against my servant Joseph, for verily I say unto you, I am with him, and my hand shall be over him, and the keys which I have given unto him, and also to you word, shall not be taken from him till I come. The spirit of darkness in Kirtland in 1837 was so pervasive that no quorum of the priesthood could escape it, nor was this mist of darkness quick to lift. As the quarterly, at, at the quarterly conference assembled at Far West April the 7th, 1838, David W. Patton declared that, as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, he could confidently recommend Thomas B. Marsh, Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, Orson Hyde, Parley P. Pratt, and Orson Pratt as being men of God. However, in a spirit of discernment rather than of disparagement, he stated that he somewhat doubted William Smith and that he could not recommend William E. McClellan, Luke S. Johnson, Lyman E. Johnson, or John F. Boynton. As, as time was to prove, Elder Patton's discernments were valid.
except maybe for Thomas B. Marsh. Anyway, John Taylor, who would, who would be called to fill the place of one of the fallen apostles in December the following year, had occasion to counsel Parley P. Pratt, also an apostle, and the missionary who had converted him. Uh, Elder Pratt recounted part of that dialogue. I am surprised to hear you speak so, Brother Parley. Before you left Canada, you bore a strong testimony to Joseph Smith being a prophet of God and to the truth of the work he, was, he has inaugurated. And you said you knew these things by revelation in the gift of the Holy Ghost. You gave me a strict charge to the effect that though you or an angel from heaven was to declare anything else, I was not to believe it. Now, Brother Parley, it is not man that I am following, but the Lord. The principles you taught me led me to him, and now... I have the same testimony that you then rejoiced in. If the work was true six months ago, it is true today. If Joseph was then a prophet, he is now a prophet. Joseph Smith was called to stand at the head of the dispensation of the fullness of times, preparatory to the second advent of the Son of God. So in addition to holding the keys of the kingdom, the prophet Joseph Smith also held the keys of this dispensation, and these keys will never be taken from him. President Brigham Young said the keys of the priesthood were committed to Joseph to build up the kingdom of God on the earth and were not to be taken from him in time or in eternity. Verse 16. Verily I say unto you, my servant Thomas, thou art the man whom I have chosen to hold the keys of my kingdom as pertaining to the twelve abroad among all nations, that thou mayest be my servant to unlock the door of the kingdom in all places where my servant Joseph and my servant Sidney and my servant Hiram cannot come. <clears throat> in this verse, the first presidency is announced as consisting of Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and Hiram Smith. Perhaps the earliest manuscript on this revelation was recorded by Frederick G. Williams. What makes this of special interest is that Elder Williams was the second counselor in the presidency at the time. Various sources help us understand the context of the receiving of this revelation. From the Kirtland Council Minute Book, we learned that on the 29th of May, about two months before this revelation was received, complaints had been brought before the Kirtland High Council against Frederick G. Williams, David Patton, Parley P. Pratt, Lyman Johnson, and Warren Parrish. Elder Williams disputed the council's authority according to the Book of Covenants to try him because as a member of the First Presidency, he was to be tried by a bishop's court, meaning a court presided over by the presiding bishop as specified in the Revelation on Priesthood, given on the 28th of March, 1835. It was rightly agreed that the council did not have the authority to try him and charges against him were, were dismissed. It was apparently in July that Joseph Smith learned that money was missing from the Kirtland Safety Society. He went immediately to Frederick G. Williams, the appointed magistrate, to obtain a search warrant. In her history, the prophet's mother, Lucy Mack Smith, says this was flatly refused and then records the following dialogue between the prophet and his counselor. If you will give me a warrant, I can get the money. But if you do not, I will break you, I will break you of your office. Well, break it is... Well, break it is then. Well, break it then, said Williams, and we will strike hands upon it. Very well, said Joseph, from henceforth I drop you from my quorum. In the name of the Lord, and Williams in wrath replied, Amen. Joseph entered a complaint against him for neglect of duty as an officer of justice, on which account his ministry was taken from him and given to Oliver Cowdery. Ezra Granger Williams, son of Frederick G. Williams, claims to have been present on the occasion when his father and Joseph Smith verbally crossed swords and Joseph dropped him as a counselor. As he tells the story, Joseph wanted to borrow money and his father would not authorize it. Shortly thereafter, he said the prophet returned and on bended knees, crying like a child, humbly asked my father's forgiveness, admitting that he was wrong and that my father was right. 
He pleaded with him to be still to still be friends and to continue by his side as usual. My father gladly forgave him, but answered no, as the people would never have the confidence in him again that they had before. Though the prophet's contrition in the above account seems exaggerated, it certainly was in character for him to freely acknowledge errors if he felt that he had made them. Assuming this to be the case in this instance, it would not have been usual or unusual for Frederick G. Williams to return to his aid in recording this revelation, and at the same time not to be offended or surprised when Hiram Smith was named as a counselor in the, in the presidency in his stead. At a conference held the 3rd of September, 1837, President Smith presented Sidney Rigdon and Frederick G. Williams as his counselors and to constitute with himself the, first th the three first presidents of the church voted unanimously in the affirmative except for Frederick G. Williams, which was not carried unanimously. President Smith then introduced Oliver Cowdery, Joseph Smith Sr., Hiram C. Smith, and John Smith for assistant counselors. These last four, together with the first three, are to be considered the heads of the church, carried unanimously. At a conference of the church held on the 7th of November, 1837, at Far West, the proposal to sustain President Williams in the presidency again met with opposition, and after a lengthy debate, Hiram Smith was nominated to take his place. President Joseph Fielding Smith notes that on the 8th of July, 1838, the prophet received a revelation for the benefit of Frederick G. Williams and William W. Phelps. Of Elder Williams, President Joseph Fielding Smith observed the prophet loved him dearly and wrote in his record, Brother Frederick G. Williams is one of those men in whom I place the greatest confidence and trust, for I have found him ever full of love and brotherly kindness. He is not a man of many words, but is ever winning because of his constant mind. He partook of the rebellious spirit in Kirtland and had to be released from his high calling and lost his standing in the church. He was baptized again, however, August the 5th, 1838, upon a show of repentance. The revelation the prophet received for the benefit of Frederick G. Williams and William W. Phelps reads as follows, Verily thus saith the Lord, in consequence of their transgressions, their former standing has been taken away from them, and now, if they will be saved, let them be ordained as elders in my church to preach my gospel and travel abroad from land to land and from place to place to gather mine elect from front unto me, saith the Lord, and let this be their labors from henceforth. Amen. You can see lots of things are going on here with the apostasy in the church. Trouble, trouble. Verse 18. For on them have I laid the burden of all the churches for a little season. Wherefore, whithersoever they shall send you, go ye, and I will be with you. And in whatsoever place ye shall proclaim my name, an effectual door shall be opened unto you, that they may receive my word. Whosoever receiveth my word receiveth me, and whosoever re receiveth me receiveth those, the first presidency whom I have sent, whom I have made counselors for my name's sake unto you. And again I say unto you, that whosoever ye shall send in my name, by the voice of your brethren, the twelve, duly recommended and authorized by you, shall have power to open the door of my kingdom unto any nation, whithersoever ye shall send them. Inasmuch as they shall humble themselves before me, and abide in my word, and hearken to the voice of my spirit. Verily, verily, I say unto you, darkness covereth the earth, and gross darkness the minds of the people. <clears throat> and all flesh has become corrupt before my face. Behold, vengeance cometh speedily upon the inhabitants of the earth, a day of wrath, a day of burning, a day of desolation, of weeping, and of mourning, and of lamentation. And as a whirlwind it shall come upon the face of the earth, saith the Lord." 
and upon my house shall it begin, and from my house shall it go forth, saith the Lord. First among those among you, saith the Lord, who have professed to know my name, and have not known me, and have blasphemed against me in the midst of my house, saith the Lord. Sounds like he's talking about members of the church, doesn't it? In, this, in the same revelation in which Zion was, defi was defined, the Lord warned the saints that only if Zion met the Lord's qualifications would it escape the judgments that were to be poured out upon the world. If they did not qualify as a Zion people, they had no promise. Severe judgments befell the saints because they failed to build Zion and abide by its laws. This prophetic statement also had reference to future members of the church. President Brigham Young warned, if the Latter-day Saints do not desist from running after the things of this world and begin to reform and do the work the Father has given them to do, they will be found wanting, and they too will be swept away and counted as unprofitable servants. President Joseph Fielding Smith pointed out, all these things will be withheld while the nations are being punished if the members of the church will keep faithfully their commandments. If they will not, then we have received the warning that we, like the rest of the world, shall suffer his wrath in justice. President Wilford Woodruff emphasized, Zion is not going to be moved out of her place. The Lord will plead with her strong ones. And if she sins, he will chastise her until she is purified before the Lord. I do not pretend to tell how much sorrow or you or I are going to meet with before the coming of the Son of Man. This will depend upon our conduct. Verse 27, Therefore see to it that ye trouble not yourselves concerning the affairs of my church in this place, saith the Lord, but purify your hearts before me, and then go ye into all the world, and preach my gospel unto every creature who has not received it. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not and is not baptized shall be damned. For unto you the twelve, and those the first presidency, who are appointed with you to be your counselors and your leaders in this is the power of this priesthood given for the last days and for the last time, in the which is this dispensation of the fullness of times, which power you hold in connection with all those who have received a dispensation at any time from the beginning of the creation. For verily I say unto you, the keys of this dis of the dispensation which ye have received have come down from, fa from the fathers, and last of all being sent down from heaven unto you. These verses teach that each member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in the First Presidency holds all the keys of the kingdom. That is, each member of these two quorums would hold all the keys of the kingdom. For, the, for this reason, we now sustain the members of these two quorums as prophets, seers, and revelators. This, however, was not the case when this revelation was given. It was not until the end of Joseph Smith's ministry in Nauvoo that all the keys had been restored in fullness to the Twelve. Wilford Woodruff described the time bestowal of, of these keys. In the winter of 1843-44, Joseph Smith, the prophet of God, called the twelve apostles together in the city of Nauvoo and spent many days with us, giving us our endowments and teaching us those glorious principles which God had revealed to him. And upon one occasion he stood upon his feet in our midst for nearly three hours declaring unto us the great and last dispensation which God had set his hand to perform upon the earth in these last days. The room was filled as if with consuming fire. The prophet was clothed upon with much of the presence of God, and his face shone and was transparently clear. And he closed that speech, never to be forgotten in time or in eternity, with the following language, Brethren, I have had great sorrow of heart for fear that I might be taken from the earth with the keys of the kingdom of God upon me, without sealing them upon the heads of other men. God has 
God has sealed upon my head all the keys of the kingdom of God necessary for organizing and building up of the church, Zion and kingdom of God upon the earth, and to prepare the saints for the coming of the Son of Man. Now, brethren, I thank God I have lived to see the day that I have been able to enable to give you your endowments, and I have not, and I have now sealed upon your heads all the powers of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods and apostleship, with all the keys and powers thereof which God has sealed upon me. And I now roll off all the labor, burdens, and care of this church and kingdom of God upon your shoulders. And I now command you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to round up your shoulders and bear off this church and kingdom of God before heaven and earth and before God, angels, and men. And if you don't do it, you will be damned. So there's a, the charge that was given to the twelve by the prophet Joseph. That was by Joseph Philly McConkie. Verse 33, Verily I say unto you, Behold, how great is your calling! Cleanse your hearts and your garments, lest the blood of this generation be required at your hands. Be faithful until I come, for I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to recompense every man according as, as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega. This description of the Lord's return tells how the Lord will come rather than when. Although no man knows the day or hour of his coming, this phrase teaches that when he appears, it will be suddenly catching the wicked unawares. And again, that was by Joseph Fieldy McConkie. Amen. I bear testimony that these things are true and say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time. Bye.